first as theological works, we have things that Paul says like, you know, I have an opinion on this matter, but you can disagree. Or this is not from me, it's from the Lord, but that one is not from the Lord, it's from me. And the, and the question came up, you know, what is, what's going on here? How do we make sense of that? And I think that was such a good question, and I wanted to deal with it because it really is fundamental to our understanding of how these letters serve or function as Scripture, and in fact, what we think about Scripture itself. That is to say, how divine is it? How human is it, right? It's troubling to us to think that we have words encoded in these texts, which for thousands of years we've revered as holy and sacred and, and from God. They're God's word, and yet it tells us this, doesn't, this part, some discrete chunk, this part doesn't really come directly from God. It comes from me, Paul. Right? Now, that's weird. <laughs> what do we do? So some of us will be like, well, you know, maybe Paul just didn't realize that he was speaking for the Lord. That could be. Uh, at the end of that section, which is in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, uh, he says, you know, you can have a different opinion on this, but I do believe I speak with, uh, I speak, or sorry, I do believe I have the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, he recognizes that uh, for some reason, he wants to tell this community, what I'm telling you now is not a tradition that can be sourced in Jesus' words. Jesus didn't t- teach about this. And it really is coming from my mind on this matter. And because of that, you need to know that it's not authentically traditional. On the other hand, you need to be advised that when I share something that doesn't come from the tradition, uh, I may be speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit. But he's so conditional about it, it's puzzling. It's almost as if he himself does not know, right? And we, we kind of wonder about this. You know, how does Scripture come to be? Um, we have all sorts of ideas and sometimes very complicated theories about how these materials came from God to us and what that has to mean. And, and, and oftentimes, uh, you know, we, we hold them very passionately, those beliefs. The reality is that sometimes those beliefs don't necessarily make it easy on us when we come to passages like this. And we've got to square the situation. And it's tricky. It's tricky. Um, and, I, and I feel like that was a, a, a big part of what Ed was saying was, uh, you know, how, how do we understand a recommendation but not a prescription from Paul, but also recognize that that writing is, is we call it the word of God. And uh, so, again, it was particularly focused on, on 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 12, in which Paul says, about you know married women and, and how they should be and whether or not you should ever marry again. I say, not I, but the Lord. Then the rest, he says, to the rest I say, not I, or I and not the Lord. When I, when I teach my students um, like the foundations or the fundamentals of interpreting Scripture, one of the first lessons I always try to convey to them is that proper interpretation always starts with letting the text speak with its own voice. Because when we read Scripture, it's very easy for us to command or to try to force or leverage Scripture to speak in our voice or the voice of our theological tradition. And if that's how we behave, are we really showing Scripture dignity and honor? If we're saying to Scripture, now you shush up. You don't talk the way that you want to talk to me. I'll tell you what you mean. (laughs) right? Now, I've been married for 16 years. I know those conversations don't end well. (laughs) 
And you know, I, I've studied the Bible for 25 years. I know those conversations don't end well. <laughs> it's an art. I mean, it's delicate. It's difficult. Some people find it theologically dangerous to allow the Bible to actually speak with its own voice. But anything short of that really raises questions about how seriously you take the idea that Scripture is from God. When Paul says, so for example, I was just having this conversation with a, 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 a woman in our church who was raised in a very fundamentalist home, and, 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 and she's, she's going through a crisis of faith right now because she's, for the very first time in her life, she's meeting uh, faithful, spirit-filled Christians who love God, love people, who, who in every way, shape, and form demonstrate that they're true believers, and yet they have a different view of Scripture than she does. In what way? Um, you know, she was taught that every single, every single word, every single punctuation mark was dictated by God to the people who wrote, and that nothing came from them. There is no, there's no trace of humanity in it. It's all purely divine, and, and that's, that's how we got Scripture a dictation-type theory. And then so I asked her, I pointed her to this passage, and I said, so when Paul says, my opinion is that widows should not remarry, but they should remain unmarried, but this is my view and not the Lord, is he lying or is he telling the truth? That's true. Contextually, it makes good sense, Right? But, but, the, but that doesn't really answer our question. The, the question is, is, is it really from the Lord or is it not from the Lord? He says it's not from the Lord. If we say that Scripture never lies, then that's a problem, isn't it? Because then we have a piece of Scripture or some idea in Scripture that he's saying that doesn't really come from the Lord. Of course, he could mean something different. Again, it could be, this is not a tradition I received directly from Jesus, but I think it's true. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't clarify for us. So what does it mean to take it seriously? And, and she, she agreed that it's quite problematic. If you force Paul, if you, if you force Paul to not be saying this in your interpretation, what do you do? Um, I was having a conversation with Michael before this class got started, and uh, we were uh, kind of quipping about the complexities and the challenges of studying these materials as Scripture and, you know, and again, like the, the belief that we have, the a priori assumption that I think is, is reasonable, you know, I mean, I think we're all taught it in Sunday school more or less, is all of these words are from God and this is the way we view them and this is the way we feel about them. And it's a relatively uncomplicated and, and straightforward view. Okay, so open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4.13. And again, the context is Ed's question, why would Paul bother to discuss something if it wasn't from God? If you, need a, if you need a Bible, then there are some here. 2 Timothy 4.13. Right, okay. So, does anybody want to read for us? Right. Is that is just fundamentally? It's a memory passage to, to for the ages, right? You want to you, you feel so ins- oh, yeah. you feel so inspired by the Michael and I joked about making a song out of this, right? <laughs> like, right. And I you know and I listen. I, I don't want to cast aspersions on God's word. I revere God's word. It's the rule for faith and life. 
but we have to accommodate the fact that that is in there, and we have to we have to filter that question. Why would Paul write something if it wasn't from God? We have to that's if that's the filter. We have to process that with the existence of passages like that, little verses, snippets like that. It's a very pedestrian thing. Hey, by the way, when you come, make sure you bring my leftover cloak and all those parchments. Are we meant to derive a spiritual lesson from that? Is there a theological concept hiding in those words? I think it gives integrity to the rest of it. Because it's authentic. Yeah. Right, but, but and this, is, this is great. I, I agree with you. It actually makes it sound like 2 Timothy is legitimately coming from the, the hand of this man, right? So it has a purpose, but its purpose, I think it has a purpose for us, but its purpose requires that it be simply pedestrian. If it's not pedestrian, if it's a theological thing, then it completely loses its force to say, wow, this sounds like a guy who's communicating with friends. I mean, that, I think that's the lesson we derive. But, you know, what does it mean that, that God would prompt or allow Paul to write a note saying, bring me my stuff? And I'm, again, I'm not saying this is not scripture. I'm not even saying it's not from God. I'm just saying that the route that it comes to us from God may not be straightforward, and it may not allow us to assert that everything that Paul wrote is something that relates to a message that God desperately wanted us to have. Right? Do you see that? I mean, I'm perplexed by this. And listen, I, I would not say in any way that I stand atop the information here in such a way that I see all the perspectives. I'm perplexed, constantly perplexed, by how Scripture works and how we can do the most justice to Scripture in its own voice, in its own modes, and also the theological tradition we've inherited. You know, let's take, for example, C.S. Lewis. Well-known, well-respected Christian author. Loved, beloved by so many in even more conservative camps because many of his theological views are conservative. Has anyone ever read his book, Reflections on the Psalms? Reflections on the Psalms? You ever read Lewis's book, Okay, yeah. I, I recommend that you read it, especially the last two chapters. A matter of fact, chapter 10 is Lewis's view on Scripture. And a lot of people that are more conservative, that love and embrace Lewis, that read the Chronicles of Narnia, love mere Christianity, they would balk at that chapter. Because his view of Scripture is, is more open. And he says, look, you know, I don't think we can come to Scripture and try to say that it, 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 it's something that we can just intellectually consume. It's got issues, it's got problems, it's got complexities. There are things in it that I, I, I don't know how to account for in terms of a basic theory that it just simply came from the mouth of God. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take up all our time talking about it, but I, I do want to at least attend to this issue because when we read Paul's letters, we are reading intimate, interpersonal communications between Paul and his churches that is... That, that is a more mundane reality. And it's, I, think it's only in, I think it's only in accepting the reality that his letters were not to us, but were to them, that they were encoded for them, that they're historically loaded. It's only in that that we actually have an encounter with God in Paul's letters. You know, in the same way, and, and I, I think this is a, a good model for it, in the same way that you, can't, you couldn't have imagined people having an encounter with Jesus apart from them accepting him as a human being. I mean, whatever else he is, right? I mean, he's God in the flesh, right? But he's in the flesh. He's so in the flesh, in fact, that most of his contemporaries have absolutely no idea he's God. 
Why would we expect God's word to be different? Something to think about. Again, I'm not trying to say I have the answers to all the questions. Clearly, I don't. You've pressed me further on this. I'll show you how dumb I am. Okay, but just food for thought. You know, if, if, you, if you take, and I think this is why I love studying the Bible, if you take your theology in one hand and then you take the Bible in the other, you know, uh, oftentimes you, you'll, you'll have to do a reconciliation. Our theologies often are not fine-grained enough to actually suit what Scripture really is. We often find that we fudge the details when it comes to transitioning from Scripture to theology. Uh, one of the things that people often will do, in fact, I, 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 it's a practice that is so common, um, and it's even taught in seminaries, it's like, this is the right way to read it. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people will learn that the way you're supposed to read Scripture, especially hard passages in Scripture, is you interpret the hard passages in light of the easy passages, or the dark passages of Scripture in, in terms of the light passages of Scripture. And you know, the interesting thing is, is if you take someone who is more or less a theological Arminian, they believe you can lose your salvation, that there's a free will and things like that, the passages they consider easy and the passages they consider hard, and thus they interpret one in light of the other, happen to be exactly the opposite of what a Calvinist thinks is easy and hard. An Armenianist goes, boy, this passage about God's election and choosing people to be saved, that's really unclear. That's really unclear. So we can't, we can't read it. We have to interpret it in light of what we know to be the truth, which is our theology, which is that you have free will. And the Calvinist does exactly the opposite. It says the same thing, but in opposite terms. You know, I, I, you know, I spent a good deal of time in a Lutheran church, and uh, you know, the Lutherans love this. I, I, I had the pastor saying this from the pulpit. You know, you interpret, you know, you interpret the, the, the hard sayings of the Bible in light of the easy sayings. But again, what's easy to you is what you find palatable theologically. So you have to have already in place an assumption of which theology is right before you read Scripture. Ah, then are you really allowing Scripture to dictate the terms? No. You're forcing Scripture to speak with your theological voice. Scripture in light of Luther, right? Or Calvin or whoever. It's just something to think about. One of the reasons we think about that is that we have theological traditions that we also later will challenge, and there's a reason that we challenge them, because sometimes these letters don't yield to easy analysis. Take, for example, Paul's thoughts on women. You know, 1 Corinthians 14 has a section that says that women should be silent in the church. They should never be allowed to teach men. He also says this in, in 1 Timothy. And then in Romans 16, we have a reference to two women who are clearly leaders in Paul's churches, although exactly how they lead, we're not clear. But the whole idea that, that, that women should never have authority over men, which, by the way, in, in some churches today is still a rule. You know, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Cedarville, Cedarville University. Yeah. In, their, in their Bible and theology department, the, the, there's only one faculty member who's a woman, and she's only allowed to teach women. Yeah, yeah, she's only allowed to teach women. The men have to be taught by a man. By a man. Um, as a matter of fact, I believe that. So her Bible, her and her, her her one class is, I think, about biblical submission. So the whole point of the class is to teach women their place. Yeah. So I mean, this is it's a, it's alive and well, right? Now, anyone who would read Romans 16 and Paul talking up the role of Phoebe in his communities, uh, the role of Junia in, in his community. What he says about Junia, by the way, is she is outstanding among the apostles, which almost makes it sound like he's calling her an apostle. 
And you'll, you'll see the lengths to which people will bend over backwards and saying, oh, no, no, no. And for actually for, for, <laughs> for centuries, people would actually change this text to say, oh, it's not Junia, that's a woman's name. It has to be Junius. It's a man. It's a man. They clearly understood. Many early Christian interpreters clearly understood the implication was he's talking about someone who is an apostle, and therefore it can't possibly be a woman. So we'll actually change the text to avoid the implication. Well, but what if it does say it's a woman? And by the way, there is no such name as Junius. No Roman was ever named Junius. So you made up a name just to rescue yourself from a theological position you didn't like. And you actually edited scripture to effect a change. So you would insulate your theology. Yeah, you've got to watch out when you read the Bible. Your theology might never be the same if you actually take seriously the word of God. So this, of course, raises for me the question of you know, how Paul is to be understood when he says things like women shouldn't teach. And this is under the presumption that, yes, in fact, Paul did communicate that. There are people who would debate about that. Some people would say, no, those are later editions. I don't know. It just, it's there, so we have to deal with it. So one way that we might process it, and I apologize that the typeface is a little small, is asking the question, when Paul says women shouldn't teach in a church, does he mean this universally, globally, like in every day and age, in every congregation, no matter where you are, women shouldn't teach? They shouldn't hold pastoral office, any of that. Or is it a local issue? That is, something about that church and what's happening on the ground means that you know, it's not a good church for women to be in authority. Okay? It, does not, it does not miss my attention, for example, that one of, the, one of the places where this issue comes up most stridently is in 1 Timothy, and 1 Timothy is written to, I mean, ostensibly written to, uh, to Timothy, a disciple of Paul, who is, who is situated as a pastor or, a, or an apostle or a pastoral figure in the city of Ephesus. It just so happens that the main religion in Ephesus is the worship of the goddess Artemis, and all of her main religious leaders are women. Women are very powerful in Ephesus. They're very persuasive in Ephesus. And it's to the Ephesian church that Paul is saying to their pastor, don't let women teach. So maybe it means in your city, don't let your city's women teach. Why? Because it, it cuts too close to what the pagans are doing. We might object to that and be like, come on, give them a fair chance. Paul didn't, but whatever. But that's the kind of question we can't avoid asking. Why not ask it? Now, did he mean this for everybody at all time? That is an assumption. If we, if we implicitly say, well, Scripture said it. I believe it, that settles it. Well, that doesn't settle it because you've loaded a philosophical assumption that when Scripture speaks, it speaks to you just like it spoke to its original audience. We get into an immense problem with that then when we read the Old Testament, don't we? Because there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that aren't commanded of you. When was the last time you, you know, practiced the, uh, the Passover? When was the last time you, you know, even Jews don't practice some of these rituals anymore because there's no temple. The point being, we can't, we can't be too simple about this. We have to recognize that there are other questions that we can and probably should be asking. Is it possible, for example, not only that Paul's command there is a local issue, but it might even be somewhere in between, which is, I like to call this conditionally universal or conditionally global. That is to say, Anytime you have a city where women are very dominant and their association is with, you know, you know, powers outside of God's realm, right, either worshiping another deity or whatever, 
would he, would he suggest in that case, because the situation is similar, I wouldn't have a woman as your pastor? I can't think of a situation like that today, but there might be, right? Maybe what Paul is doing is he's trying to avoid, he's not, he's not laying down something that's a, so much of an, a moral issue as he's laying down a, a decision that has to do with the practicals of living in that space. Oh, we get a lot of that in Paul's writings, by the way. You know, Paul will have a lot to say in 1 Corinthians about whether or not you should eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. When was the last time you had to worry about that? I mean, do you, do you go to your butcher and go, now, I just want to make sure that this wasn't offered to another god before I eat, right? Well, why does Paul bother to go into that? If it comes in a package, you don't know. Is it approved by Krishna? <laughs> right, great, right? Um, the, the issue is, if, you know, Paul says, if you eat meat that's sacrificed to an idol, you can do that because we know that those idols aren't real. So it's not like there's something magically wrong with the meat. However, he says, however, if there is someone who does believe in idols sitting there watching you, don't eat the meat. Why? For the good of their conscience. You don't want to offend them, exactly. They will assume that if you eat this, that you are worshiping their God. And then when you say you don't worship another God, they'll go, you're a liar, I saw you eat the meat. Now, from your perspective, you are fine. But from their perspective, you've done something wrong. Or you're lying about it, right? So the issue is, is that there are times in Paul's letters where the directions that he gives, which we take to be absolute and moral, are really about him giving advice on how to get along with your pagan neighbors without compromising your witness to Jesus. Is it possible that the women part is an issue too, right? That is to say, in your community, for the sake of the gospel, you cannot have women teaching. Maybe, maybe he would say, you know, maybe there will be a time where this association does not hold, and therefore I don't bar women from teaching in that situation. But in the culture we live in, yeah, it's accommodating. Yeah. Oh, surely. Oh, yes. Right. In law school. It's not like you were te- teaching scripture, right? <laughs> yeah. You're right. No. Or we're still living in them. <laughs> You're right. Oh, yes. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, it's, and it goes deep, you know. It, it affects me. I was just recounting to, uh, to my wife and some other ladies from our church about how embarrassed I was one day. I was sitting in an undergraduate classroom. I was teaching the undergraduate classroom. And just, you know, you drink in the culture so much that you don't realize you're spouting it back out until after the fact. And I had this young woman saying, you know, I was going around the room and having, it was the first day of class, having students introduce who they are, what they're doing, what their major is. And she goes, you know, I'm, I'm going into the field of medicine. And I said, oh, you're going to be a nurse? <laughs> exactly. That is the right response. And as soon as I said, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I said, oh, you know what? I am so sorry. No, or a doctor. <laughs> but, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a guy who's conscious of this, or I try to be conscious of this. And I'm, I'm concerned about it because I have three daughters, four daughters, sorry, I've got a foster daughter now. I've got four daughters and I want their path in the world to be strong, right? I, I want them to have a clear path in the world. And yet even I can't resist falling into the trap of the way that people think about it. Yeah. 
Knowing in part. Yeah, that's good. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think we know in part, we see in part. I mean, in that, in that context, Paul is specifically being apocalyptic, you know, talking about the dawning of the age to come and when all things will be revealed. But I think you can, you can argue that, yeah, I mean, Paul, Paul couldn't have foreseen every single modern complication, right? He, he gave us great tools. God gave us, through Paul, great tools to use to decipher how we ought to be in the modern world. But I don't think that he would have assumed that, you know, that his culture was permanent and lasting. As, you know, I can't remember, what, Daniel, if it was you that said this, or maybe you said, you know, Paul seems to have been the opinion, of the opinion that there wasn't going to be a future. He seems to have been of the opinion that the world was going to end in his lifetime or soon thereafter. As, by the way, as most apocalyptic visionaries do. I was just covering this with, a, with students in my, in my Second Temple Judaism class. Um, you, you read apocalyptic literature, whether it's in the book of Daniel in, in the Bible or extra-canonically in Enoch or 4th Ezra, 2nd Baruch, any of these apocalypses, they all have the same opinion. More time has passed. Literally, actually, I think it's the, uh, the, apoc- the, uh, the apocalypse of Ezra says more time has passed than is yet to come. We are more than halfway there. It's imminent. If the, if the world consists of 10 weeks of blah, 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 we're on week seven, right? That is the apocalyptic imagination. It's always imminent. So Paul seems to fall right into that. So maybe he wouldn't have been worried about future and adaptation, but, you know, absolutely, because of that, we cannot take Scripture apart from the, cult, the cultural context in which it was written. But what we need to be careful of, I think, is that we don't want to use that as an excuse not to listen to it, because that's what some people will say. You know, some people say, oh, that was written back then, it's ancient, it's irrelevant. Well, that usually, and that usually reflects the failure to actually read the text, because you read the text and you go, actually, that's not so irrelevant after all. There's a lot in here, a lot of good stuff. So, in the context, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, apocalypticism, the end of the age, and just to sort of give you a sample of how we might think about this in terms of each letter, First Thessalonians, which most scholars believe is the earliest letter that Paul wrote, um, is a good example of, of, of how we might kind of analyze this. And one of the things that we say is, again, like, if we're not reading something like First Thessalonians as a theological workbook, because that's not how it was written, it was written as a communication, as a letter, then part of what that means is we need to get behind it and try to figure out what the circumstances were that it was addressing. Who was it addressing and why? And, you know, most of the content of 1 Thessalonians has to do with a very sort of strange question about when Jesus would return and usher in the Messianic age. Nod to the concept we were just talking about. Because, you see, when you read between the lines, if we're right on this, by the way, I'm going to sneeze here. I'm going to try to turn off my mic so I don't blow you all away. Thank you. All right. This is a church that seems to have thought that Jesus was going to return before any of them died, and they started freaking out when people died. This is what Paul seems to say. He says, now, I don't want you to be uninformed, people, about what will happen, you know, that, that if someone dies, they're not going to be excluded from the Messianic age. You know, in order to be included in what Jesus is going to do in the Messianic age, you don't have to be living when he returns. 
And, and, and so he then he, he proceeds to teach them about the idea of resurrection, which is a, a Second Temple Jewish you know, a, a reality. Um, you don't find it as much in the Old Testament, a little bit here and there, a little bit in Daniel 12, a little bit in Isaiah you know, 24, 24 to 27, um, but not really apparently as important as it became to later Jews. And the fact that this is, I mean, this, by the way, would have been a concrete, real, fundamental teaching of most Jews. As a matter of fact, in the Second Temple period, the Jewish texts that we have, like First and Second Maccabees, they reflect that it was seen as like, sort of like, if you're Jewish, come on, you, you know about the resurrection, right? You believe in the resurrection, right? I mean, at least if you're a Pharisee, the Sadducees didn't actually believe in the resurrection. But if you're a Pharisee, and most popular Jews, like the, the lay level of Jews associated with the Pharisees, then they believed in the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. Such a fundamental doctrine, and yet Paul has to write a letter back to the, first, the, the church uh, of Thessalonica because apparently when he was teaching them, he forgot to tell them about it. <laughs> right? Like, this is pretty fundamental. And apparently they've missed some sort of important... Maybe he even used the word resurrection, but they didn't understand it. And so he's gone from them. He can't get back to them. He can't teach them in person, so he fires off a letter saying, oh, one more thing. I forgot to tell you. Clearly, I forgot to tell you because now you guys are worried. I forgot to tell you that people who die in Christ will rise again, and then we will all be with the Lord. You know, we won't, we won't be separated from each other. And he goes on to talking about the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so he's, he's clearly doing some housekeeping. And I, I do this all the time when I teach. I, I run ahead of my students, and then the next day I come back, and my students will go, I am lost. You said this, this, and this. How does that make sense? And I go, oh, I'm so sorry. You're right. I forgot to connect the dots for you. And it created all sorts of trauma and questions, so let me address them. Paul is doing the same thing in his letters. He's cleaning house. He's writing back, and he's saying, oh. Of course, what that, what that leaves unknown for us is the content of his teaching when he was at Thessalonica we get little glimpses of the kinds of things he would say in the book of Acts, but he doesn't record those for us because that's not what Paul wants to write. Paul only writes when he can't be present, and when he's present, he prefers to speak. This, by the way, will cause him no end of anguish later because his letters are apparently better in terms of their literary style and the rhetorical flourishes than his public speaking. His, he has opponents who will actually say, his letters are impressive, but when he appears in public, there's not much of a show. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's for the best that we only have the letters. I don't know. <laughs> right? Philippians. It may be that he had a speech impediment, but we don't know, right? That, that's always a possibility. Why is it not working? I think it just died. Again. Yeah, I barely, like, kill this thing's batteries. Yeah, it sure is. So <clears throat> we'll, we'll move through this a little bit. Philippians is another letter that we attribute to Paul's early career. Um, it is one of the letters that we refer to as prison epistles or prison letters uh, because Paul wrote it while imprisoned. We don't really know where he's in prison at this time, and that actually affects like when we would date it. Is this, you know, is this when he's in prison in Rome, which is recorded the, the story that's recorded at the end of the book of Acts? Or is it an earlier imprisonment? Paul himself, in his biographical reflections in letters like Philippians, talks frequently about having experienced 
it's working again. Oh, that's mysterious. Oh, there we go. <clears throat> he, he, he talks about having experienced imprisonment on multiple occasions in multiple locations. So, you know, it's entirely possible that this could be earlier, middle, or late in his career. Philippi is the, uh, appear, appears to be the oldest church in Europe, anyway, uh, that is founded when he is on his uh, second, I think, second missionary journey. Um, you know, he, he, the first missionary journey largely takes him through modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor. Uh, the, second, the second journey will take him through uh, into Greece and Macedonia. And Philippi is, is founded during this time. And Philippi is, a, is an important city because it is, it is essentially the site of the Roman administration in that region. And it was conferred early on, it was conferred under, I think, Caesar Augustus, the status of an imperial colony. So the, the people of Philippi were actually given the privilege of being citizens of Rome. That's something you can't have taken for granted. Um, to that end, when you read uh, Paul's wording, wording of Philippians, you will often see references to citizenship, to uh, some of the, the hallmarks of Panhellenic society, like uh, athleticism and, and the, the athletic games, uh, you know, all, all the sorts of things that would be particularly of interest to the citizens of Philippi. And Paul, because he's, he knows who he's writing to, he writes his, his uh, points, his theological message, in a language that they would relate to. Okay? Um, this is a letter that some call a friendship letter, although I, I, when, we, when I studied this with some students, there were, there were some moments that I thought, ooh, I'm not sure he's being as friendly here as we think he is. He's, he's a, it's a complicated letter. But he likes to talk about their friendship. He ap- appears early in the letter to, he's discussing his current imprisonment, and he appears to be addressing the fact that this community, the Philippian community, is worried about him. And he says, hey, look, don't be worried about me. You know, I know this looks bad because I'm in jail, but actually it's turning out really great because it's giving me access to uh, minister to people. You know, the fact is actually, now that I think about it, the, the, the comments that he makes about uh, being in prison, he actually says that this has given him ap- opportunity to talk to Caesar's guard, suggests that this may be a Roman imprisonment. Why would the Caesar's guard be someplace else? Um, but he, he sees it as an opportunity that God is using to expand the gospel in new directions. Um, in the midst of this, just this, he's constantly teaching them in this friendship uh, which he, he also punctuates by saying, you're not like those other people, and then he complains in chapter 3 about his enemies and what the problem is there. Um, he comes out by saying, you know, that you, you, should, you, know, you should celebrate together like all the good that you're doing. And you know, I, I feel like I, maybe I deleted a slide here, and now I'm perplexed at where it's gone. But that's okay. That's okay. It happened. So let that be said. Oh, no. Oh, there it is. I, it's on the other side of the page, right there. Oh, I'm not at all. <laughs> Just talk to my wife. <laughs> um, one of the things that's so interesting about this is that Paul has a fixation with using words, verbs, and adjectives that use the, the Greek uh, prefix sin, which means together with. It's like all the time he's using it. He wants to see, he really wants to see them as partners in everything he does. And, and that makes sense because on some level, uh, this community was very much involved financially in his extended missionary trips. You know, there is a, um, 
there's, a, there's an interesting bit of software online called Orbis, which is about mapping the Roman world and travel, travel and shipping in the Roman world. And using this, what it, what it does, essentially, is it, it computes data that we have from ancient Roman records about, you know, uh, how far of a trip it would be, how much it would cost if you, if you just traveled with yourself or if you shipped a certain amount of grain, you know, how much money would it take to get around in the currency of the day. And you can actually, you can utilize this mapping software to give a rough estimate, not only about how much time it took Paul to travel in his missionary journeys, but how much money he would have had to spend just on travel alone. And, uh, you know, on the first missionary journey, which is his, his, his earliest, obviously, it's his shortest he, he, just on travel expenses, you know, hiring, a, hiring into a caravan or paying for a fare on a ship or, you know, basic lodging, it would have taken him an entire year's salary just to pay for that one missionary trip. Okay? Based on the salaries of the day, what you would get for a, way, a day's wage. Should have made more tense, that's right. <laughs> you might say for Paul, everything was tense. <laughs> that was a bad joke. So, <laughs> I'm a dad. What can you do? So, he, he had communities in these larger, com- these larger churches that were quintessential donors to his cause, without whose help he couldn't have survived. That doesn't mean he, obviously, he still had a day job. <clears throat> you know, he worked in, in, in working on tents, which is a very broad industry in the textile industry. Um, but, but clearly, he receives good, uh, good help from these people, um, and, and he writes back a letter. We think that Philippians may have served the purpose of saying, you know, I so deeply appreciate what you've done for me. Um, in the letter, he acknowledges that he's had a visit from a guy named uh, Epaphrod- either, it's either Epaphroditus or Ep- Epaphras. I can't remember which one it is here. And that probably Epaph- uh, this fellow, E, <laughs> Epaphroditus, has brought him the donation or has brought him word from Philippi, uh, which, by the way, addresses another question that was asked last time. How did they know what was going on in these churches because of people like Epaphroditus? Okay, so this, you know, friendship letter, that, which emphasizes their co-laboring together, uh, you know, it served the purpose, perhaps, of, of saying, we, I appreciate so deeply what you've done for me. Please don't give up on me yet. Keep praying. And I want you to know, as a sort of a field report as a missionary, it may look bad. It may look like I've taken the initiative from you, and I've gone into the field and I've stalled out because I'm in prison, but actually it's, it's not stopped. Actually, it's just as good or even better than I'd hoped. Okay. So encouragement to, uh, to keep the relationship alive and, and perhaps also to stimulate further support. Colossians, however, which is a complicated letter that some people think didn't come from Paul. Other people say maybe it came from Paul later in his life. Um, it's a... It's a fundamentally different kind of letter dealing with a different set of problems. This community this community is uh, getting involved with groups or ideas that Paul sees as deviant from authentic Christianity. One of the things that he criticizes them for is worshiping angels. And, 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 and I, I, you know, I, had, I had cause to re-examine this recently in light of you know, reading a lot of Second Temple Jewish texts where angels play a very big role. They're always talking about angels. As a matter of fact, there are all sorts of confusing things about you know, some texts that suggest that when people die, they become angels, which generally was not an orthodox view. So Colossians, you know, Paul, Paul seems to be engaging with this community who has gone a little bit astray 
not only in worshiping angels, but kind of refocusing around concepts of ritual and law as a way of finding God. And they, along with the, the church of Ephesus, have become really fixated with the idea of other supernatural beings and asking, where do we fit with them? And where do they fit in the picture? In both Colossians and Ephesians, which as I indicated, there, there's a lot of overlap. As a matter of fact, the next time you study one or the other, study them together. They elucidate each other. His message was, before you go asking about where the angels fit in and how, how we might relate to them, consider that Jesus stands ahead of them all. We get some of the strongest statements about Jesus' divinity in Paul uh, here in Colossians, which is part of the reason, by the way, people think that Colossians wasn't from Paul because, oh golly, Paul couldn't have believed that Jesus was actually God, could he? Unless he did, you know. The emphasis, though, in these letters is to clarify that Paul's gospel teaches that Jesus is at the head of all creation. And if, if you're worshiping him and you're connected to him, then you don't need to worry about anything else. You don't need to worry about whether you're, you know, you're satisfying the other spiritual powers or whether out to get you or anything like that. You don't need to worry about them. Because Jesus, not only is Jesus in charge over them, but in fact, any harmful spiritual power that exists in the world, Jesus actually conquered and led in triumphal procession. So they're already enslaved to Jesus. In this context, you know, we, we're seeing that the communities that Paul was a part of were very diverse. It's a modern conceit, frankly, that Christianity only became diverse with the Reformation, and then we've kind of scattered abroad, and we've got all these sects and groups. When you take a cold, hard look at the facts that we have reported to us in these letters and other places, it becomes very clear that being a Christian in the first century could have meant any number of things. You could have seen the world in any number of ways. The theological problems and questions you'd have wouldn't be the same as the people down the street. And so Paul's letters, it's hard, that means, of course, to take Paul's letters and make them uniform and unified in terms of a theological statement because what we're seeing here is Paul digging deep into his theological riches and, and what he knows, but he's deploying it in creative ways. And we never know exactly what he might have written outside of this how he might have addressed some of the concerns we have that are fundamentally different from his. Now, <clears throat> super important, when we get to Galatians, super important. One of the things that is not totally unique to one particular church is the issue that comes up in Galatians. And this is probably where we're going to spend the rest of the time we have today. The Galatian correspondence, the letter to the Galatians, is not a letter written to one city, but to a group or region of churches in Central Asia, or Central um, Asia Minor, actually, over here, but Central Turkey, in uh, Anatolia. Galatia has a northern and a southern region. Um, Paul, we don't know if Paul visited the northern region much, where these you know, churches were and, and who was uh, being addressed in the letter. Some people say north, some people say south. Which one you decide will actually ultimately affect where you, how you date this letter. And the reason that he's writing this letter, he makes pretty, uh, pretty apparent, if you read it in the context of what we know about the history of the time, if you read it in context with the book of Acts, um, Paul is upset with the Galatian churches because they have been persuaded to change their, their minds 
on how one has a relationship with God via Jesus. And in particular, these Gentile churches, these are not Jewish people. Most of the people in these communities are Gentiles, non-Jews. They have become convinced that in order to follow Jesus, you have to become Jewish first. And that's a weird thing, I think, in the modern world. We think, why would you say that? But it is a fundamental truth that the earliest Christians were all Jewish, and then when they made converts, they made converts primarily to Jews, of Jews. They didn't really understand what the parameters might be if you went to somebody who wasn't Jewish. Take, for example, Jesus' words in Matthew 10, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is a part of you know, the, the challenge of reading the Gospels, right? Here we have a statement in the Gospels indicating to us that Jesus' ministry, first and foremost, was to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. But we read his words in Matthew and other Gospels as if they're directed to us. And we don't pass it through the filter of saying, well, his first audience was Jewish. Maybe he wouldn't have said it exactly the same way to us because we're not Jewish. Jesus' concern at the beginning causes many of his followers to resist reaching out to non-Jews. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, it says that most of the, most of the disciples who went out of Jerusalem went into the world preaching the gospel, but only to Jews, never to Gentiles, until some entrepreneurial, enterprising Disciples from uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, this is, I think, Acts 11. Cyprus and Cyrene actually go, hey, let's try this on Gentiles and see what happens. Now, the book of Acts also records for us the dramatic conversion of Cornelius, who is a Gentile, but he's also a God-fearer, which means that he associated himself with the house of Israel, even though he didn't circumcise, and that was the big issue. And that begins in, in the span of Acts chapter 10 to, four, to 15, a long section about the expansion of the gospel among non-Jewish people and how it caught most of the early followers of Jesus totally by surprise because they were thinking, this is a, this is a message for the Jews. And when Paul writes a letter like Galatians, he reveals to us that even after the church has begun bringing Gentiles in, there were many Christians who remained convinced <clears throat> that Judaism still had to be your first starting point before you follow Jesus. And so there were people, and if you look at Acts 15, it actually says, there were Pharisees among the believers who rose up and who said, if you want to be a disciple, you must accept circumcision and follow the Torah of Moses. I mean, and like I said, it's a fundamentally different way of approaching things. Can you imagine someone saying today, oh, you want to follow Jesus? Awesome. You need to be Jewish first, and then that's step one, and then step two is then you follow Jesus, right? Strange, right? That's not the way we would think about it. As a matter of fact, the way we think about it is, oh, I'm sorry, you can either be Christian or Jewish. You can't be both. That's the way that most people in the modern world would think about it. Well, Paul confronts or has to confront in his letter the fact that there are Jews who preach not only that you have to be a Jewish in order to follow Jesus, but you can't actually be saved unless you're Jewish, unless you follow the law, unless you're circumcised and keep kosher and all those things. And Paul says, that's nuts. That's nuts. And it's not what I taught you. Nuts? No, actually, he says some other interesting things. When he, when he talks about this, open up to Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> 
Michael, you might know where I'm going with this. I don't know. Paul is pretty spicy in this letter. Galatians chapter 5. And so keep in mind that he's, he's talking, yelling, ranting uh, at this, this group of churches who have decided to embrace the ritual of circumcision in order to call themselves Christians. They make it a, a, um, a prerequisite. You have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if you want to follow Jesus. Someone read for me Galatians chapter 5. Verse 12. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, right. (laughs) When it sinks in, you go, oh, oh my. I wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves. Yes, that's right. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God, right? Yeah. I wish those who unsettle. What, is it, what does that mean? Some of you have a different translation. Castrate. Castrate. Why does he say emasculate, castrate, mutilate? Why does he say that? What is circumcision? Right. Uh, it's not castration. It's not castration, but where is it focused? It's on the genitals. What he's saying is, you know what? I'm so sick of these guys. If they want to get down to business, they would do us all a favor. They just cut their stuff off. All, all, just cut their nuts off. Just cut them off. Thank you, God. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, he's hot. He's hot. He's angry. I wish they would just do us all a favor and stop reproducing. I wish they would just cut their nuts off. He actually refers, by the way, the word for circumcision in, in, in Greek is peritome, which literally means to cut around. Okay? If you've ever had a, something otomy, right? Tome, the cutting. Um, peritome. And in Philippians, he refers to the Jews as the katatome, the cutter-offers. Or the mutilators. And he doesn't mean all Jews, by the way. He means those people, the Judaizers. Those people who go around behind me. And this is the, the real truth is, as Paul, seemingly, as Paul was going from church to church teaching a gospel that said, you Gentiles too have miraculously been brought into the kingdom of God and you don't even have to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses because it's faith in Jesus Christ that brings you in. He would move on, and another group would come behind him and say, oh, is that what he said? Oh, you misunderstood him. Sometimes he stutters. Sometimes he's hard to understand. Okay? But this is what he means. No, yo, you do need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. You misunderstood him. And he goes around. And we, we have this trace evidence, by the way, you know, in, in, in Second, uh, Second Corinthians, for example, he talks about his opponents. Are the Israelites? So am I. Are the Hebrews? So am I. Are they circumcised? I am too big deal. And then he talks about how they criticize him and how they attempt to override his churches. There is a counter-missionary movement trying to undo the work of Paul. He's pissed. At one point, in, in, in it actually helps us understand something. I think it's in Philippians. At one point, he says something really ambiguous about the sign of our shame being removed. Um, let me look here. Look with me, maybe, Philippians. Yeah, Philippians 3, 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of those who katatome the flesh. 
those who sever off the flesh. We are the ones of the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And by confidence in the flesh, he means confidence in a mark that's put into your flesh that says, I belong. Later on in that same chapter, he says something that I think we just don't understand unless we understand it. In, the, in terms of his, his fronting of the idea that his, the, main, the main argument his opponents are making is you have to be circumcised and look like a Jew if you believe in Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to look Jewish. And he says, verse 21, actually verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. You know, our membership, our communal belonging is in heaven against belonging to the Jewish community via circumcision. Okay? It's from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of His glory. In the context of embodiment and bodily image, he's talking about circumcision. Jews believed it was embarrassing to be uncircumcised. It was shameful and it was not okay. Even about non-Jews, they, they were kind of like, oh, don't show me that. Don't put Greek naked statues up because I don't want to... It wasn't the, the fact that they were naked, it was the fact that it's uncircumcised. That's not right. And so Paul's inner Jewish rhetoric is, that's a body of humiliation. And what he's essentially saying is, you don't have to be circumcised now. Look to Jesus to resolve this issue in the future. He will make us look like him. So Paul does not completely invalidate the idea that circumcision has some role to play. He just says it's going to happen when Jesus returns. Right? But the reason he's doing this is that this is the, this is the, the issue that compels his opponents. So much of it, and again, I knew we weren't going to get through that much, uh, go, it's shot all the way through Galatians. It's in Romans, where there's a debate between Jews and Gentiles, and it demands of us an accounting, if you want to understand Paul, to know... What was the biggest issue that he confronted? And in the majority of his churches, the issue that is consistent through most of the letters, aside from Jesus is Lord, is trying to negotiate how Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus can get along even though the expectations that are set on them are different. And that's what it means to read this in context. Okay? That is to say, there might be some things in these letters that are like, really particularly pertinent to resolving the conflict between Jews and Gentiles that actually, and then in our context theologically, might actually be really fruitful for talking about divisions in our churches. Right? Look, let's, what we might be seeing here is, how did Paul tackle one of the most divisive issues in his time, which is that some Jewish believers believed you couldn't come into the fold unless you became Jewish first, and Paul said that's not true, it's through Jesus Christ. Well, we'll talk about that next time. All right, I think we're done. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay, right now, where do you go with that? <laughs>